Hello, everyone. This is Tanner Menard with Equality Arizona, and this is the Equality Arizona podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about surveillance, and um, it'll be a conversation between myself, our co-host, Dr. HLT Kwan, and Nick Bustamante. So uh, with that, I'd like to just uh, ask Dr. Kwan if you'd like to introduce our guest and you can get our conversation started. Thank you, Tanner. Again, this is HLT Kwan, um, and you are listening to Equality Arizona podcast. Nicholas Botamante holds a doctorate in jurisprudence and also a doctoral student currently in justice study at Arizona State University. His work focuses on surveillance on the U.S.-Mexican border and privacy law. And I'm just so thrilled and uh, excited that we have Nick with us uh, to have this conversation. Um, Tanner, I, I know that one of the things that I really appreciate about our conversation is that you have a way of helping us understand the day-to-day impact of some of these heady issues that supposedly we are talking about. So I would appreciate it if you uh, begin. Thank you so much. Um, I've personally just had an interest in surveillance, you know, most of my adult life because I was 21 when September the 11th happened. And so it had a huge impact on my life. And I watched the rise of the surveillance states in the United States. Um, I don't really know much about it. Uh, I've researched it a little bit of work, a little bit for my poetic work, but I'm looking forward to talking about it. And I'm, I'm, I would like to just start out um, at, by asking the both of you a general question about um, the origins of the surveillance state in the United States, the like the initial laws, like the Patriot Act and FISA. And if you could talk about the extent to which we are surveilled and the extent to which we surveil one another. Okay. Well, before I I ask Nick to comment on that, because that's why we have him here. um, I just want to say that when we think about surveillance, we think of Big Brother and the film 1984, uh, which is a dystopian novel by George Orwell and later made into the film in which mass surveillance is deployed to maintain a totalitarian repressive regime, highlighting the ways in which information, facts are manipulated. So terms such as uh, newspeak, uh, doublethink, and doublespeak, and big brother have been in many ways repurposed to convey a mass surveillance and totalitarian tendency. But in our time, In these times, the time of big data and cryptocurrencies, not to mention a pandemic, which has global health implications, but also justification for surveillance. Surveillance become one of the most important topics, I think, deserving of public scrutiny. Um, So the FISA law, um, you know, we could uh, certainly uh, talk a little bit about the Patriot Act. And we can talk about the technologies that we have come to accept in our daily lives. So let me just leave it at that and ask Nick to join us. Are you there? Uh, yeah, Dr. Kwan. Um, thank you both for, for having me on here. Um, I, I think that when we think about surveillance right now, especially in the, the time that we're in, it, 
just as um, uh, Tanner Wright had stated earlier, it's drawn back to 2001. And I think that the, the modern baseline for the big data surveillance that we have going on now goes back to that movement, um, especially in the aftermath of, two, of 9-11, as the Snowden revelations revealed through um, the NSA's PRISM program, which allowed for domestic surveillance. But I think that going to someone's earlier point about not Big Brother, but how we are coming to surveil one another, I think another good point to look at is the use of algorithms and consumer prediction as another type of surveillance. Um, and that going back, going to Foucault's point on the panopticon, it's not the, the point of the panopticon is also to shape behavior. And you have a rise right now, not right now, but for the past 10 years of consumer surveillance that Shoshana Zuboff notes is a type of surveillance capitalism that's rooted in documenting every like that we have, every purchase that we have to predict and ultimately shape future consumer behavior. And her larger point in surveillance capitalism is talking about the concern with that is not just about getting a new pair of shoes on sale, but what that can do to the democratic order if these algorithms are used to say, influence the outcome of an, of an election. And so I think it's when we important, when it's important when we talk about surveillance, not just to talk about it in the sense of big brother watching us. That's, that's a huge point. Yes. But in the ways that we have allowed other companies to monetize our own personal data. And in that sense, it leads to how we surveil one another. That's really um, an interesting point that you're making Nick, about the way that we surveil one another. And I'm, I'm interested if you could just like talk to a general audience of people that are using social media um, who are maybe surveilling their friends or surveilling their employees or surveilling their colleagues at the university. And I was just wondering if you could talk about about that a little bit and then speak a little bit more about predictive algorithms. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I'll take your second point first, because predictive algorithms are a huge subject onto itself. But maybe basically what it is, is it's the mass generation and synthesis of hundreds of thousands of points of big data. And you use those, you run through an algorithm to predict a certain model outcome that you're searching for. And I, we can get into later how that's used by law enforcement or how it's used in the criminal justice system. Um, but basically, you know, you the way it works at its most basic level is you see people liking stuff on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram, and you're generated to more content that you are liking. And it's not necessarily that you're going out and looking for this content, but the algorithm is set up to assume that based on your past thousand likes, hundred thousand likes, whatever, based on your age, based on your ethnicity, based on your zip code, you're likely going to like this. And so it's um, motivated, not necessarily on something that you actually may like, but on what layers of data are going, are saying about you. It's a type of psychographic profile. And I think um, the former CEO of Google had said it best when he said something to the effect of, we know what you want before you want it. Um, and I think that Dr. Kwan can talk about that later. 
but going to how we surveil one another, I think that one of the most, um, I guess, blatant ways that we surveil another in the in the past year um, have on, have been the use of cell phones at um, protests. And initially, they were there to capture um, a historic moment for Black Lives Matter and um, a historic moment for growing scrutiny over law enforcement, not just against um, black and brown people, but questioning the establishment as a whole. And you saw hundreds of thousands of people globally go out. And it was great in that people were able to share their experience across country, across time and across space. But in doing that, people also opened themselves up to a different kind of surveillance. So what law enforcement did and agencies did across the country is they used facial recognition software to capture and analyze video of what people were sharing. And they then used them in some cases to go and arrest people at the protests. Um, that's not necessarily even new. Um, that has gone back. Uh, I think the earliest um, use of facial recognition software and predictive analytics to monitor uh, a Black Lives Matter protest, I believe, goes back to Freddie Gray and the use of facial recognition software to not only arrest protesters, but also arrest some journalists. Um, and what happened, I think, at the Freddie Gray Baltimore protest was they had just analyzed video online, people showing on Facebook or their social media accounts. And then they ran those faces or those names associated with those, with the faces on that content through um, law enforcement databases. And they looked for people who had an outstanding trick traffic ticket or an outstanding criminal warrant. And they went to those protests and arrested people on that basis. So that's a double bind situation that we're in and, the ability to share content and to share data is so important to capture these movements where people are questioning systemic injustice and rightfully so. But at the opposite end of that is that the power to do that also comes with the power to aggregate that and deploy that against the people who are looking at the system critically. Thank you, Nick, for that. Um, so, I actually want you to to kind of I, I want to seg this into the work that you are doing. Uh, you're doing research, looking at the surveillance on the border. Now, one of the software company, um, surveillance technology company, has been in the news a lot, and this is Palantir, um, whose co-founder and chairman, of course, is uh, Trump supporter Peter Thiel. Um, Palantir works with the military, with Homeland Security, with ICE, and various intelligence agencies. And the Soros Funds Management uh, recently sold all of its share, uh, some of which have been held since 2012. Um, the last year, the fund stated that um, the Soros from Fund Management does not approve of Palantir's business practices and that it made the investments when the negative social consequences of big data was less understood. And as you explained, not only are we better understand it, but it, it's also better exploited. And as you noted, activists, particularly Movement for Black Lives activists, migrant justice, and of course, trans queer activists have been vocally criticizing Palantir for working with law enforcement to analyze social media posts for everything from gang prosecution to coordinate operations and mass takedowns. 
But ICE also relies on Palantir software to execute workplace raids. And in addition to federal government and its intelligence agency that rely on Palantir software to mine data, um, local law enforcement rely on Palantir technologies to organize, mine, and draw connections based on these algorithms that you are referencing, including using gang designations to lock up large number of Blacks and Latinx people. And we know that trans women of color are frequently targets of police profiling and violence. And so we're going to take some of these pieces separately. The first one I want you to comment on, of course, is ICE and the technology, but also the kind of surveillance that are being done on the border. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I I started researching Palantir through a group called uh, Mijente, M-I-J-E-N-T-E. They are um, an immigrant advocacy group. And this group and other Latino immigrant advocates have, I've seen, been the most vocal against the use of Palantir's data analytics. Um, But basically what they do is they're a data analytic firm and they create software platforms and create a data ecosystem for ICE to um, capture details associated with the cases that they were assigned. So one of their program uh, called the Falcon program, F-A-L-C-O-N, is used to help ICE uh, organize their their caseloads, but also share data across platforms. And that sounds kind of benign at first that it's, you know, it's just like any other online platform where people are sharing data, but where that data comes from is, is immigrants and the connections that they're drawing are to other immigrants. So that the Palantir's Falcon program and their Falcon tip line program and their case management platform system have been tied to documenting data about children crossing the border, about family that they're staying with, about other connections they have in the United States under the uh, rubric that 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 system is used to vet human smuggling. So when you have unaccompanied youth coming to the border or immigrant families coming at the border and they're turning themselves in, you have the um, border patrol officers who will go and interview them. They'll collect personal information uh, about them and they'll connect collect information about people that they're supposedly coming to stay with. And the concern that I believe is that that the connections that they're drawing to other people are then used to aggregate and deploy workplace raids or ICE raids. Um, and that it's so it's not as as benign as the systems are just helping um, agencies keep track of data. It's how they're deployed against the people that they are surveilling, basically. But surveillance at the border, I mean, uh, most of the surveillance technologies that I've read, uh, whether they be, I guess the best case example is um, um, our, our drones. Uh, they were initially developed for Border Patrol and later used abroad in the Middle East. Um, but uh, sur- the border is, in my opinion, the most ideal space to study surveillance because the technologies that are deployed there go from not just tracking cell phone data, um, but to biometric data for people turning themselves in at the border to capturing 
messages that are being sent across the border to capturing people's stories who are turning themselves in at the border. And then those stories are later used and separated to tie pieces of data to other people in the United States. So it is a space fraught with surveillance. Can you talk a little bit about the specific, do you have examples to like somebody's stories so you could share with us? Um, about the data being collected at the border? Yeah, yes. I think, I mean, I initially got interested in the border because um, it occupies such a liminal space in Fourth Amendment analysis. You don't really have an expectation of privacy at the border. So searches can happen there just for basically any reason, and you don't need probable cause. Um, you just need reasonable suspicion that someone either committed a crime or crossed the border, which can mean basically anything. But what I looked into initially was the use of um, stingray drones, or stingrays and then drones at the border. There's a two different technologies. Drones are, like you see in the movies, they fly overhead and uh, they capture images from the ground up and they're deployed to some other um, station where those people are just viewing those images and then directing the drone. Stingrays are also known as IMSI catchers or um, dirt boxes. And what, the, what, these, what this technology does is that they mimic cell towers. And in spaces like the border where you have not that great cell service, what these devices do is they block out we- weaker signals by making themselves the, st- the strongest mimicked cell signal. And so if I'm driving from the border to Phoenix and I send a message from the border and I'm near uh, a Stingray device, that Stingray will capture my uh, capture my message and it will go to that, uh, that Stingray. And then from there, that Stingray can see the content of the message. They can see who I was messaging abroad. And then when that person responds, respond, they then have that message also. And um, that's frightening, by the way. That's frightening. It is frightening, completely constitutional. Um, there's been suspicion uh, that, not suspicion, it's actually been proven that these stingrays have been used further and further away from the border. And I'll get uh, into that in a second. But um, what my research found in, I believe, 2017 was that uh, DHS and CBP had the capability to use um, and they purchased stingrays with an airborne flight kit. And one of the drawbacks of the stingray is that um, it has a, a limited space where it can block out a cell signal. And so it's, it's only about 600 meters, but when you attach them to something that is higher up in the air, that, that, um, that range grows. And what I found out was that DHS had the ability and, and did purchase from the Harris Corporation, the maker of stingrays, um, where airborne flight kits associated with these stingrays. And there's document, documented use of uh, stingrays being flown across the border, um, I think in between 2013 and 2017, they were done over 1,800 times. Um, but what the, what the concern is that if you have a stingray that is attached to a drone and you're flying it across the border, one, you're just picking up messages as you're dragging along. And, um, through speaking to people who are forensic experts and who the, the criminal defense community uses 
to vet stingrays is um, one, like all of these systems, they're kind of shrouded in secrecy. There is nothing that documents how once these messages are captured in, uh, I, I, that's something else I didn't explain is that when um, let's say I'm talking to my dad from the border and I send him a message and he sends me a message back. They're not just capturing my message from the border to be able to capture me. They have to capture the messages around me and then they can focus on the unique identification number associated with my phone. So there is another privacy concern for third parties who are kind of in that dragnet in the beginning. And there's nothing that I found that shows that there is a documented procedure for deleting those messages for third parties caught in that initial um, dragnet. Um, And that is the problem that I wrote about when um, for one of, for, for my dissertation I'm currently writing for my dissertation rather is that there is that concern when you're flying these systems across the border is that they're just picking up messages and there's nothing on there that shows what the procedure is to delete them if they save them. And people that I've spoken to who work in the defense community um, basically have said that they, there is no documented procedure for it for the further deletion. And there's nothing saying that um, they're not using those messages messages that were captured without probable cause or reasonable suspicion of a crime. They were just happened to be in that space. There's nothing to say that new criminal cases aren't being built or new cases for immigration are not being built based off of those other third party messages. Um, so that is another layered concern. The other concern is that the Harris corporation and other, and the Harris is not the only corporation that makes these devices. There are a, a number but these companies have non-disclosure agreements. So if there's an ongoing criminal matter or criminal case that comes as a result of this, and you see that, you know, there wasn't a warrant issued for this and there was just um, what's called a, um, it's not a warrant. It's called a, uh, you, you ask for authorization under uh, the pen register statute. And through that device, they were able to capture messages. And so what people in the defense community have learned is that, well, if that generally means that they're, if they think there's a stingray involved with this, they want to cross-examine the expert who, um, who used that stingray to say, you know, how'd you get this information? Where did it actually come from? How did you come to learn about my client? How did you come to learn about this defendant? And there's a non-disclosure agreement that these companies have that basically say that, if that happens, um, you cannot go to court and disclose how these technologies work, um, where this information came from. And so it's a good tool for litigation um, because you can, I imagine you can use it to uh, get a better plea offer um, based off of someone's unwillingness to testify. But the problem is that it implicates someone's um, constitutional rights to trial and it also keeps the public kind of disinformed from how these devices are actually used and the, ex- the, the scope of their use. Um, and to tie it kind of back to what we were talking about earlier is that stingrays and drones came back into, uh, into the public uh, scrutiny over the summer when there was documented use that DHS um, was letting other agent other federal agencies use their drones to 
fly over and monitor Black Lives Matter protesters. Something else that also came out of that was the use of stingrays and um, protesters across the country had reports that their cell phones weren't working or that their apps weren't working or they would um, log on and off. And what the, um, I believe the, the New York Times wrote about um, this was that that was the, the likelihood was that police agencies in those areas were using stingrays. They were just parking them in the back of trucks and just monitoring protesters as they were walking down the street. So you, I think for, for me to understand surveillance, I, I initially under, got into it because I was interested about the U.S.-Mexico border. But in doing that, it kind of led me down a rabbit's hole to show that what's the surveillance that is developed and connected at the border is also intimately connected how to the surveillance strategies not only used against immigrants within the country, but to other people of color, particularly Black Lives Matter, and other and immigrant advocacy groups inside the United States. Um, and so that's something that I'm still trying to think through and how to write about. But I think that it can be understood through um, surveillance capitalism and that, like Sushana Zuboff spoke about, that this new economic model that commodifies data is, is poses a danger to the democratic order. Another facet of that to me is the growing nexus between law enforcement agencies and data analytic firms who are similarly commodifying data, not necessarily to so you get a better deal on shoes, but to often mitigate against people's constitutional rights. Um, and so that is particularly of concern. I'm just curious if you could say for a moment, what does that mean for people that local police departments possess that kind of technology. And also, you know, there's um, automatic license plate readers and uh, facial recognition technology in, in street cameras. Like, what does that mean for us? Like, just like being a citizen driving down the street. I think that, um, one, it speaks to how well or how much law enforcement agencies are funded in this in this country and that they have access to what is military or was once military grade technology and now it's commonplace in the urban space. Um, I think that it's particularly concerning from a constitutional perspective and civil rights perspective for how these are being deployed, just because the secrecy that they're being deployed in, you don't always know how someone's data is being pulled in. Privacy law in this country is not great. Um, uh, fortunately, Arizona has a explicit guarantee to privacy in our constitution. However, how it's been interpreted is um, by their, our state Supreme Court has not always been as well flushed out as as um, people who are concerned with privacy would have, would like it to see. Um, I I think that it's concerning when you see how it's being used against people to stifle civil rights. And I think that the ultimate, not the ultimate, but a externality that we need to take seriously is how this shapes behavior. Because if you are under 
the panopticon constantly, you're, you're going to change. Your attitudes are going to change. And, you know, it, maybe it's great that it prevents criminal behavior. Maybe it's great that it, it stops people from speeding that, I mean, I don't want someone like my mom who's driving a car to be hit by someone who's speeding that, that, that sounds awful. And that is awful. But in doing that, I think that there's a giving up of a certain type of liberty that is, um, I don't think that the public has really thought through yet what the implications for that are. Um, and it's, it's not just here. I, I think that, um, there, I think that what's with the the algorithms that are being used in China, that there uh, is more of a global consciousness going on to how our data is being used and what it says about us and the freedoms that we're giving up by letting ourselves be defined by disparate pieces of data that don't necessarily tell the whole story. Again, these are run through algorithms, and the algorithm is set to to achieve an end goal or achieve um, to to. To achieve uh, a definition within its parameters set, but they are set and they are set with, a cer- with certain types of biases. Um, but the um, another thing that I came across in my research was just how widespread the, the surveillance network is, is that um, there are under the Trump administration, I believe in 2017, Elbit Systems, an Israeli based company who has a, a U.S. branch. Um, received an ICE contract to construct cell towers in the borderlands between um, U.S. and Mexico on the um, uh, Tunnel Atom um, Reservation. And that same company um, has generated and profited from the data systems that they've built along the Israel-Palestinian border. And so these systems are being designed in a border context and I think that people have to pay attention to what that means when systems are designed from a perspective to keep people out, a particular group of people out, and to monitor a group of people. And it takes on an added concern when it's not meant to only monitor those people, but then monetize the that deployment of that data. So um, that is something that I think is worth consideration. Thanks so much, Nick. I, I do want to bring the Detroit's Project Greenlight in at this point because I think it's a, it's a good segue to talk about what does it mean to move these technologies that are at, to use as border patrolling um, and monitoring and, and containment or deterrence to move into internally in, inside a community as a form of containment. So... Starting in January 2016, with eight camera systems going live, the city of Detroit deployed its project Greenlight with the support of local businesses and other allies, uh, essentially deploying video surveillance with real-time face facial recognition. By April 2020, that's less than five years, by the way, uh, there were high-definition camera in 700 locations across the city. This was coded as real-time technology for public safety, uh, project Greenlight uh, in aiding and abetting the law enforcement stranglehold of city's residents, especially its brown and black residents. This is how the New York Times reported in 2019, quote, 
24 hours a day video from thousands of cameras stationed around Detroit at gas stations, restaurants, mini marts, apartment buildings, churches, schools stream into the police department downtown headquarters. So the system works by connecting these cameras to so-called real-time crime center for monitoring. And this, of course, is a privatized security system because participating businesses are paying into it to install the camera and agree to upload data to the system, which is then operated with the FBI, Homeland Security, and other private security companies. And so big data algorithms are being used uh, to, to, to model potential crime hotspots and to identify suspects. It's like the minority report, right, uh, where it anticipate crimes. Uh, and in 2017, a year after the project Greenlight began, Detroit contracted with Data Works Plus for its face um, plus facial recognition technology uh, to assist in identifying suspect in real time. Uh, so this is this invasive surveillance that you're talking about uh, is being used to collect and compile data from these sources, multiple sources, right? Social media and other to process data. Uh, and then with the aid of algorithm to draw connections that purportedly demonstrate patterns and relationship of these communities, of these people that are marked as different, as target for surveillance and police uh, patrol. Can you talk about that, Nick? Can you explain to us a little bit more? Or uh, Because we know that the algorithm is not accurate, right? We know that the problem with artificial intelligence is misrecognition, right? There's been a number of studies that have found that facial technologies have a tendency to reinforce pre-existing biases, uh, particularly racial and gender biases. Uh, the famous study by the ACLU in 2018 found 28 members of the U.S. Congress, United States Congress, mistakenly identified uh, by Amazon recognition software as some as people who have been matched uh, of those people who have been arrested for for a crime. So um, what does that mean? What are the implications for civil rights and civil, civil liberties uh, and, and this incredible intrusion into our lives and in our communities? I think that, uh, again, this is one of the problems with the Fourth Amendment or privacy law generally is that, you know, once you go out in public, you don't have an expectation of privacy. Um, I think that that should there should be a reframing of that too. have a right to anonymity in public, um, have a right to association under the first amendment. But, um, that is, it's, it's a huge problem. And, um, I mean, project Greenlight was one of the first well-documented instances of that. I think later on after the Detroit model, New York, um, installed a similar model to have all of these images captured and go, and go through one of their data command centers there. And this isn't just, this goes on in law, along with every, in every major city, law enforcement uses facial recognition to document and track movement of people, to document and track movement of traffic, to document and predict criminal behavior. Um, I think that, um, I think Amazon got a lot of flack and um, rightfully so for the recognition software, which was exposed to misidentify um, black members of Congress. And um, first, first and foremost, it's good to know that one Amazon is not the only 
company that develops and deploys the software. So as good as it is that attention was drawn in um, to that software, these softwares are available from other um, tech firms and they are purchased and used by law enforcement and they are used at ports of entry. They are used at the border. Um, the problem with misidentifying people is that one, it's, it's abhorrent, especially if it's related to a criminal offense. And the, the response to that is, well, um, why don't we just put more people of color into the database then so that these systems can better identify people of color? Because there isn't a well-documented error rate for people who are, have a darker phenotype. Um, but the, that to me only, it doesn't really address how they would be deployed against those communities and how they're being used to predict or model big data to predict crime and where a local law enforcement would put its resources based off of those predictions. Um, I think ultimately it could lead to more police presence in communities of color. So I think that if any, um, going to Dr. Kwan's point about addressing bias in big data and artificial intelligence, smart algorithms, Addressing the error rate for how it identifies people is kind of um, a drop in the bucket concern to me. And the primary concern is, well, how is this data being used and coded to potentially be used against people of color? Um, And there was a really good um, piece that was done in... Uh, I want to say ProPublica, and they documented the use of a and a, um, a probation or a, a risk assessment associated with people who were convicted of a crime, and they would be sentenced within a range based off of that of an algorithm that was used to assess their likelihood of reoffense or their risk associated with their criminal charges, and what that what their piece found was that um, the compass system um, or it was being used in a local court to assess people's risk. And what happened was, is that time and time again, black and brown people were more likely to receive higher risks associated with their score than were their white counterparts, including white counterparts who had, more criminal violations or more criminal convictions rather. And I think that the ACLU is involved right now in ongoing litigation on the use of a similar type of algorithm in detention centers where there's an assessment risk associated with a detainee's release. So me, any addressing of bias, it has to go beyond just the, um, the issue of people that are going to be misidentified what concerns me is that how people are going to be identified within the parameters set by that algorithm. Yes. Thank you. Especially since as wire magazine reported recently that the best algorithm available continue to uh, misidentify black people, something at the rate of five to 10 times higher than they would white people. So your point about the error rates is well taken. I know Tanner has questions 
Um, I know we also don't have a lot of more, lot, lot of time left, but at some point, I do want you to come back and 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 answer the question: If error rates, it, it's not where the solution lies. What is to be done? What are the solutions? What are the things we should be concerned of? But I'm gonna I'm gonna let Tanner go first. So go ahead, Tanner. Thank you, Dr. Kwan, and thank you so much for all this information, uh, Nick. I, I have a similar question to Dr. Kwan, which is just, you know, we're learning about the extent to which we are surveilled and uh, how powerful the technologies are that are being deployed basically against us. Um, so once once we start to demystify these things, like, once we start to get past the myth of Big Brother and to actually look at who is behind the curtain, what what are they actually doing? Um, what steps can we take as citizens and how can we organize to reclaim our right to data, to our data? Like to like, how can we demand, for instance, that we know when we're being surveilled or that we understand that we be told the conditions of algorithms that are being used to surveil us? Is How do you propose that we start to gain agency over these systems? I think a good first step is by organizing to pass laws in local state legislatures that require whenever these systems are used, particularly in the criminal justice context, that they're audited for racial bias and gender bias and class bias. I think that um, another issue is to pass stronger state or federal laws for privacy, particularly as it relates to issues outside of criminal justice, because there you could, going to Shoshana Zuboff's point, the Fourth Amendment is so limited and that data that is coming from the consumer perspective, consumer sector can easily make its way into the criminal justice sector. And people should have a right to know how and what way their data is being monetized. Some people um, have suggested uh, people to be paid for the data that they're used. I'm not necessarily that that addresses the problem um, head on. I think that the goal is for people to start having conversations and organizing around what do we mean when we talk about about privacy rights in a data an era driven by big data yeah i i agree i mean it's something that i've really been thinking about um <clears throat> my interest in surveillance started around the time of um well i mean really 911 but when standing rock happened um i got really interested in facial tech uh, recognition technology because of the way it was being used at that particular um, action that was taking place. Um, and around that time, I, was, it, it, I think it was a couple years before that, that Facebook started automatically tagging photos. Um, so I did this little project where I would, I studied how facial recognition technology worked and I started pixelating my selfies in the different quadrants. To, and the goal was to see if I could produce selfies that Facebook couldn't tag. 
And it eventually figured out what I was doing and started tagging me as any pixelated photo that I would put into it. Um, anyway, I wrote a, I wrote a little book around that. And um, what what occurs to me is is that maybe we need to start thinking about um, asking for. And I mean, this is purely a conjectural thing, but it seems to me that like in th this age of artificial intelligence, we have an emergent part of ourselves that we need to have a right to. And that emergent part of us is anytime we are exposed to some kind of artificial intelligence that analyzes our biometrics or our dispositions and our likes that we it, it seems, I, I mean, like as a citizen, I would like a right to that emergent part of me. And I'm just curious what, how people feel about like, how can we organize around that? Um, and that, that is a question that I think not too many people have really figured out yet, but I'm anyway, I just thought I would mention that and see if anyone had something more to say about it. I, I think that, that it would be great if we were able to put that into the lexicon of, you know, if we're talking about body sovereignty or body autonomy um, and have our data be an extension of that, that would be a great first step in changing how people view their right to privacy in the modern age. Yes, indeed. Um, so I, I know you know I ask this question uh, all the time. Are we our data and uh, are we just our data or are we more than our data but and and i know that you always want to ask the question what is the relationship between data and and who we are as human so um i know you've raised a number of issues today and i'm just so deeply uh appreciative of you taking uh time out from a very very busy uh week to talk with us about this um are there things and issues that we haven't brought up or a raise that you would like to add? And also, uh, before you answer that question as a final thought, um, I wonder if you could comment briefly, though, um, how are other countries uh, addressing, so either the EU or China, for that matter, uh, or people in the global south, how are people coping with this differently than we are? Uh, I think that no, you guys hit everything on the head and what people should be paying attention to. I would draw people's more attention to the role that algorithms play in the criminal justice system as a, another good thing to follow. Um, um, the, the EU a couple of years ago um, passed a privacy law that um, basically says that people have a right to be forgotten um, and they can be taken off the internet. I think that that's a, good starting point um i think california passed a similar bill um and california may have passed or they were talking about passing a bill that pays people for their data i um think that the i'm concerned with more so yeah i think that people should have a right to be forgotten i think that people should have a right to being understood as more than their data. I, I, I think that the thing that concerns me more is passing laws that 
subject the companies that are creating these algorithms to a type of auditing system where they are audited for racial and gender class bias. Because the fear for me is still that how people are being viewed in light and through the lenses of these algorithms. Um, that is a, the primary current concern for me. Um, in regards to what China is doing, I really haven't followed it as much as I should. I know that people have, have organized against it. Um, I think that their social rating score is particularly has a potential to be particularly dystopian. Um, but I also don't know how far away we are from that in the United States. Um, so that uh, I, I, I don't know what people can do other than organize and have conversations that challenge what we think is private and fight for the piece of ourselves that we want to keep. Thank you. On that note, Tanner, did you have anything else for Nick? No, I don't, but I just want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I think it's incredibly pioneering and I'm so grateful to um, you for sharing your knowledge and your research with our audience um, at Equality Arizona. And Dr. Kwan, as always, it's so wonderful to get to work with you on this project. I've really learned so much from you. And I know that everyone out there is just really benefiting from the perspectives that you bring here. Thank you for bringing our first guest to this podcast. Um, And with that, unless anyone has something else to add, I think that that's probably a wrap. Yes, it is. Oh, I would just say to please tune in um, next month for a conversation on rise of authoritarianism and the right-wing policy workshop. This has been a production of Equality Arizona. Find us online at equalityarizona.org.